Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. I wonder as Christians, do we really, really appreciate the depth of the lostness of the world around us? Uh, yes, just a few weeks ago, just talking to an elderly friend, and he told me that during the previous lockdown, lockdown version one, that someone had given him a video CD, a video of someone's testimony of conversion, and he'd watched it on his computer. And he really surprised me. He said, the man on the DVD, you know, the man who was talking about his testimony was saved. I've never heard of anyone being saved before. And you'd wonder how in Northern Ireland somebody could actually say that. Oh, to be fair, he was English. But that's neither here nor there. He lived here most of his life. He said, I didn't know that anyone needed to be saved and the worst bit was still to come because he then said you know I never heard anything like that in my church that I go to how dark how terribly dark is the heart of the unbeliever I mean years ago we used to hear stories about darkest Africa the darkness has spread we're living in dark days we're living in darkest Ulster When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this passage that we have read together is a really good illustration of the awful darkness of the ungodly soul. And it's common, not just in the days of Acts, not just somewhere way out in the Middle East, but right here among us. I want to look at how we confront pagans here, how Paul and Barnabas confronted pagans. And it's in verse 8. And um, the apostles are now at Lystra, remember where we left off last time. Paul and Barnabas, discovering that there's a plot to have them both shamed and stoned, have acted prudently. They've left the city of Antioch in Asia Minor, in Pisidia, and they've travelled inland to Lystra, where once again, of course, they begin to preach the gospel, they begin to preach Christ and him crucified. But in Lystra, something is different. Do you remember how we saw that Paul now has... Um, a kind of a missionary strategy, a missiology. You can see it happening in verse chapter 14, verse 1. When they, they came to Iconium, and they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. And it seems that Paul has developed this policy that when he gets to a new city, he will travel into, he will find the local synagogue, and he'll go into the synagogue, and he will present Christ as the Messiah crucified for sinners, and there'll be a ready-made audience because in that synagogue will be both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles who have converted to be Jews, 
or Gentiles who are what they called the God-fearers, people who had not become Jews but were seeking some contact with the true God. And so there he would preach the gospel, preaching to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. But when he gets to Lystra, that doesn't happen. It just simply says that there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet. We don't hear an account, first of all, of how they went to the synagogue. And so this witness, witnessing to Gentile pagans, begins with a stunning visual aid, a practical demonstration to illustrate well how a sinner is rescued from sin. It involves a crippled man, a poor man unable to walk, a man probably not even able to stand up, a condition that has afflicted him from birth. Matthew Henry, commentating on this, says that his fact, that, uh, on this fact, says we should not take occasion hence to thank God. We should take occasion hence to thank God for the use of our limbs. And those who are deprived of it may observe that their case is not alone, not singular. And you can see right away why this healing, this particular man, happened when it did. You can see that he is without strength. That's what the word impotent here in the authorised version means. In some of the other versions that we have, it will say he was without strength. And you know, it was while we were yet without strength that Christ died for the ungodly. Remember, this is an introduction to the gospel for the people of Lystra who have no knowledge of God's dealing with his people, no knowledge of the covenants of God, no knowledge of the God who uh, created them, who created the world, no knowledge. These are pagans. They have no knowledge of God whatsoever. Their native religion is total paganism. And now we're having a man who is without strength, a man who is helpless, sitting on the ground. The illustration begins. What happens next is that the word of God is declared. In verse 9, it tells us the same heard Paul speak. The preaching of the word occurs. Paul's preaching the gospel. I wonder, was it an open-air meeting? I wonder, was he standing in the center of Lystra and proclaiming the word fearlessly as was done for so many years in this province of Ulster? We were lamenting this in church this morning at, at Ballymacashan before the service began. One of, uh, one of the eld, older men in the church came in. I was standing warming my hands on the old boiler and one of the older men came into the boiler room and he said to me, this country is dreadful at the minute. He says, I remember the day years ago when you couldn't go into a town or a village on a Saturday morning or a Friday evening without somewhere there being an open-air meeting. Some man standing with a group of other people proclaiming the gospel. I remember this myself in my younger days, walking up and down the roads in Belfast and the, the great shopping roads, the Newton Arms Road, the Shankill Road, 
the Craigie Road, all of them would have had open-air meetings up and down those roads. Saturday morning, shopping with your parents, parking the car, and you would walk out and somebody would hand you a gospel leaflet. Paul was preaching. Paul, as we know, constantly preached about the cross. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. That that preaching is declared, it's verbal. It's in a pulpit, it's in a Sunday school class, it's in a private conversation, it's on the street. It may be written in a tract or a book, but it must be present. The man who is helpless hears the word of God. He hears Paul speak. That's how the faith that we need to be saved is presented to us. I'm told that the words always preach the gospel and if necessary use words as attributed to John Wesley. I am not quite sure of that, but whoever said it, it's wrong. It would properly be always preach the gospel and always use words. Always use words. The word was declared. So there's a man without strength And the word of God is declared. And we can be sure that when Paul preached, he preached Christ crucified. Now the next thing that we see in the text here is that Paul perceived that the man had faith to be healed. His condition was dreadful. He was unable to move. He was helpless. He was weak. He was afflicted. Can't you see the building of this gospel illustration? And the word of God has been preached. And Paul perceives that the man wants to be rid of his condition. He wants to be away from that old weakness. That impotence which is dragging him down. And he has faith. Now here's a question for you. How would a man in an utterly pagan city. In a place where the gospel has never been proclaimed before, who up until now has never heard of Christ, who up until he had heard Paul speak, has never heard of his atoning death, has never heard the gospel, how would such a man have faith? It's very simple. Paul explains in Romans chapter 10 that faith cometh. By hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The man heard Paul. He's just listened to a sermon. In the course of that sermon, he's heard the word of God being proclaimed even just one time. He's been offered the gift of salvation in Christ. That's all the faith he needs. I remember one time being at a minister's conference in County Down and the speaker was a well-known Baptist pastor from Wales, Jeff Thomas. And I remember him talking as an illustration in one one of his sessions, talking about a lady in his church who'd come to faith in Christ. 
and he stopped and he paused and he said such a tiny little bit of faith faith is the size of a mustard seed what do you need to come to Christ do you need the faith of Billy Graham do you need the faith of some worldwide known evangelist that's what the world looks and thinks all you need is enough to trust to rest in Christ's finished work it might be the tiniest little smidgen but that man had it that day sitting on the ground in front of Paul Paul saw it so there's a man here who is in a dire condition who cannot help himself who hears the word of God and has this little tiny mustard seed this grain of faith and he hears the voice of Paul who says to him stand up stand upright on thy feet man who's never walked before and his life has changed and the case in this case the result of the transformation is not just spiritual not just inward it's visible the man with the unknown illness in his legs simply stood up and on Paul's command he stood up straight and he walked and he leapt and whatever happened it was so noticeable that people began to talk and the news quickly spread throughout the city Certainly, in the case of the Christian, people should always see a change in the life, that, the, that our lives have been transformed by an encounter with the Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the same thing happened to Peter and John back in Acts, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the people saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that although they were uneducated and unlearned men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. I wonder when people see my life, do they see a difference? Do they see that I've been transformed? Do they see that I've been changed? Do they look at me and say, He's been with Jesus. Something different about him. What amazing gospel illustration. Practical demonstration. Practical illustration of God's saving work. So the people of Lystra not only hear the gospel, but they can witness its power. And they can clearly see how God saves sinners. And the steps are simply laid out for them. That we are sinners without strength from birth. As the man was impowerful from birth. And they can clearly see how God saves him. When the word of God is preached and authoritatively declared. And is cross-centered. And the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner of his sin. And imparts faith to receive the word. And repent of sin and trust the Savior. And the sinner is converted. And given new life. Confronting pagans. With the gospel. Pure and simple unadorned, unapologetic, 
You're a sinner from birth. You can't save yourself. You need Christ. You need the preaching of the gospel. You need to have faith in him. Come now. Come. Accept him. Trust him. And be changed. Not just for now, but for all eternity. Confronting pagans with the gospel. Contending with pagans. You see, whenever the gospel is preached, it always provokes a reaction, doesn't it? It certainly did in Lystra. Look at the paganism going on in verse 11. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Lystra, of course, was an outpost of the Roman Empire. It was totally uncivilized. It was totally pagan. There was a huge temple there. The authorized version talks about the god Jupiter. The Greeks would have called that god Zeus. And of course they thought when they witnessed the healing of the crippled man that these disciples were human embodiments of their pagan gods. You see it in verse 12. Uh, that they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius Mercury because he was the chief speaker. Mercury was the Greek god, the messenger. False god. Paganism always involves idolatry, doesn't it? I mean, these people had no practical help from their government. The Romans who who ruled this passage thought nothing of worshipping Caesar as... A God sacrificing to Caesar, even though he was clearly a man. Herod, King Herod Agrippa I, who we've seen in chapter 12, he didn't mind being worshipped as a God um, to his cost, as we noticed. I think even today, way out in some remote island on the Pacific Ocean, there's a tribe called the Castom people who actually believe, it's hard to believe that they believe that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, is a god, and they worship him. Would you believe that? Paganism. But I did say to you that sometimes as Christians we fail to understand the depth of the paganism that's around us. I have some personal experience of this. Um, About 10 or 12 or maybe 15 years ago, I can't remember, I was in city at the time, and I was doing, along with my assistant pastor, I was doing some door-to-door visitation around one of the housing estates, and we came across a lady who was married to a gentleman who was from abroad. I don't know where. I presume it was somewhere in the Indian subcontinent or about that area. And we got to talk to them. They had some children, two children. Um, and we, from with her children from a previous marriage, and we had got an entry to the home, and had begun to witness to them to the government and the gospel. Had visited a couple of times, left them literature, left them a Bible. Um, but it just so happened I found out that that man was facing extradition. He was working here illegally, and they had been married, and. So whenever the extradition case came up in Belfast, I was asked 
summonsed actually to go as a witness to the extradition case. It's quite informal. I've never been to one before. been to many court cases in the magistrate's court in a previous career, but I've never been into that before. So it was a bit of a lesson. But it was very informal. There was a gentleman sitting on the bench who was the judge. There were two barristers this side. The witness box was there. There were some seats for people. The man who was being extradited wasn't even in the room. He was in an adjacent room. And I was giving testimony. And the barrister for the government who wanted to see this gentleman sent back to his previous country asked me why I had been visiting his house. Obviously trying to discredit me as a witness. All I wanted to say was that I'd seen them living in their house as a family. That's all I wanted to say. Um, Not my business other than that. I just was telling them what I saw. But they they tried to discredit me. The lady barrister stood up and very nicely asked me what I was doing visiting a man who wasn't of my religion. After all, this gentleman is an Indian or from the Indian subcontinent. So he's not a Christian. What right have you to go into his house? Now, that gave me an amazing opportunity. And right there in the court... I began to tell them about how I was commissioned by the Lord Jesus to carry the gospel into all the world. That I didn't care what a person was, whether they were a Protestant or a Catholic or somebody from the the Indian subcontinent. It didn't matter to me because Christ's death is sufficient for all those who come to him. That Christ has died for sinners and he is a sinner and The barrister is a sinner, and the judge is a sinner, and I am a sinner, and we all need to be saved. And that there's only one way to come to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. For he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. I went to call with that man in order to convince him to come to Christ and to have his sins forgiven. I got speaking uninterrupted for a good five minutes. And when I finished, the judge sitting in the, up on the bench did this with his glasses. He pushed them down to the end of his nose and he leaned over the desk and he said, Quite so, Reverend McAvoy. Quite so. <laughs> ah, so you're not, don't, you're not always under pressure in these situations. But the long shot of the tale was that the gentleman later on was told by his legal team that my testimony in more ways than one in the dock in the witness box had swung the case and because I was able to say that I had seen them living together as a family without any intention of going into the house to find that but simply finding it by accident was enough for them to have their case won. So the man rang me up. And despite all the gospel preaching that I had done, despite all the work that I'd done in the home and in the court that day, the man rang me up about three weeks after the trial. And he said to me, and I... I'm not exaggerating in any way. And I said this with great sorrow. 
he said to me, you saved my life. Now you are my God. And I said to him on the phone, I'm not your God. I'm just a pastor who saw you and reported to the authorities what I saw. No, I will worship you. Every year I will worship you. And I'm trying to talk to him over and over again. And when he hung up, I could feel the tears in my eyes. I pleaded with him not to do any such thing. Look at what happens in verse 15. Sirs, why do you these things? They wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. There are nations in this world who still think that. That might be an extreme case. But do you not believe with me that paganism is not confined to far eastern religions, mystics, or the ignorant citizens of some ancient city away off in the Roman Empire, our neighbours, many of whom who would describe themselves as Protestants are very little more than pagans. Some of their beliefs, their idolatry, is not much different. Finally, convincing pagans. Quite an important couple of verses coming now. Because Paul here is seen preaching to pagans. Up to now, of course, we've seen Peter and Paul and Stephen preaching to Jews, preaching about the promised Messiah who had been crucified. These sermons that they preach start with reminding the Jews of the goodness and the grace of God in election and in covenant mercy. But in this little passage, Paul preaches to Gentiles. Gentiles who have no understanding whatsoever about the God of the Bible, about the plan of redemption by sovereign grace, It's the first sermon that we see of Paul preaching to Gentiles. And when we come to the situation in Athens, we'll see another one of those. These pagans have no knowledge of the ways of God. Paul begins with natural revelation. Delves into it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, doesn't he? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. There's a God who created you. Look at verse 15. We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Let's think about that wee sermon for a moment. It's very short. It's going to take a minute. Where's his starting point? Humility. We're just like you. That's a very good starting point, isn't it? 
Plenty of people in the pagan world who have the wrong idea about Christians and about Christianity. They think that Christianity, you see, is about something you do, don't they? They all think, generally, most religions think that you get to heaven or wherever you're going because of something that you do. And they think that Christianity, too, is about something that you do. Even people who profess to be Christians sometimes think that Christianity is about something you do, about being a better person, about living your good life, about being good living. They think that um, Christians must have some kind of uh, inclination that they're going to do good works to get to heaven. And when they discover then that you're pretty much like everyone else, they then accuse you of hypocrisy because they think that you haven't lived up to the standards that they have set for you. So it's probably best to be upfront with them. So Paul hits the nail in the head. He says, we're just the same as you, you know. We're sinners too. We've got exactly the same nature as you. Look, we also are men of like passions with you. We have the same sinful nature. We're Christians. We have the same sinful nature as everyone else. We haven't been perfected. We've only been forgiven. We've wonderfully been forgiven. But we're not in heaven yet. We still have our sinful passions. We still have our sinful nature. It's why we're taught to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses. In the Lord's Prayer, we have to pray for forgiveness. A woman passed away into eternity very recently, professed to be a Christian. Her friend was talking to me a while back, and we're talking about this very subject, about the fact that Christians are only sinners saved by grace, and that we should never think or imagine that we're better than other people, and that we should pray for for forgiveness. We should repent of our sins as believers. And she said, my friend, the one who has since passed away, told me that she doesn't need to repent that she repented when she was saved and she doesn't need to repent ever again. And that's what her pastor teaches. They have to live a victorious, joyful life, not a repentant life. They have to be victorious, not go around thinking that they're sinners saved by grace. Well, that's not what Paul's saying here. We are men of like passions as you. We are only sinners saved by grace. Don't be thinking that we're special. It's only Jesus that's special. He is the one who saves us and keeps us, not us. And then show the pointlessness of human inventions. Start with humility when you're dealing with others, when you're dealing with people who don't know the gospel. Don't let them think that you're some kind of super Christian. Start from the point, look, I'm a sinner just like you. I need the Savior. And show the pointlessness of anything that we invent in the way of religion. We preach to you, says Paul, that you turn from these useless things, these vanities, onto the living God. Why are you worshipping worthless things? You see, that's what this world's doing. They're worshipping things that are worthless, things that will pass away with them, things that will be gone, 
things that are pointless in eternity. They're worshipping their homes. They're worshipping their, their career progression. They're working, worshipping their cars and their cash and, and all the vanities that this world gives them that the book of Ecclesiastes refers to as being vanity. Everything under the sun, everything on this earth that will one day not be here is vanity. Turn away from them. Turn away from all the vanities and idols of this life. Seek the living God who created you. Start with humility. Show the pointlessness of human invention and vanity. And point them to the Saviour. To a living God who is not a myth like the gods of Greece, who's not a lump of wood or a statue or a stone, who is a powerful God, who has history in his hands, who created the whole universe out of nothing, who gave freedom to men and women to make their own choices and walk in their ungodly ways and exercised with them great patience and forbearance. In verse 16, he suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, ways that took them away from God. And yet that same God continually cared for them in his common grace. Verse 17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And even with such a powerful argument, it was really hard to get the people of Lystra to abandon their paganism for its normal behaviour for pagans to attribute the goodness of God to their own idols, to their own works. So Paul's starting point with the Jews is to recollect with them the history of God's saving grace his covenant grace towards his people right throughout history. Pagans have no such understanding. Not then and not now. Their biblical knowledge, their knowledge of the scriptures, their knowledge of the Lord is virtually nil. So he started with something he could understand. There's a creation. So there must be a creator. The same creator provides for you and keeps you. He's been long suffering with you. But now it is time to seek the Lord. So in this wee passage, we have Paul confronting the pagans. We have him contending with the pagan reaction to preaching. And we have him convincing the pagans of the gospel.